Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. The conscience is an interesting thing. Sometimes it is a mere whisper in our minds, and in other moments it is a voice that rings through all the other noise in our heads. It is that voice that we often try to silence, but we find that it can't be avoided, it can't be ignored. And it's something that we can't quantify or maybe even explain. But we know that the conscious exists because we have all felt the pangs that it creates within us. One thing that is amazing about our conscience is that often it causes us to remember things that we have done in the past. And even though the event is long behind us, we can still feel this unbelievable sense of guilt within us. Now maybe we are able to push it back when this comes back to our mind, or maybe like the story of the telltale heart, it becomes something that we can't ignore. Regardless, the conscience is a very powerful thing. And our feelings of guilt and our feelings of conviction can can continue even beyond the moment when we made the decision to do the wrong. And as we've been working through the story of Joseph, perhaps you've wondered what was going on in the minds of his brothers over these many years. How often did the brothers of Joseph remember that day that they threw him into the pit and sold him into slavery? And how often did they feel that sinking feeling in their guts? How often did their conscience wake them up in the middle of the night, scared that one day the truth would come out? How often did the brothers get together in private meetings and confirm that the strength of their collusion was going to be strong that one of them wouldn't go to their father and tell the truth. Well, in our passage for today, we clearly see that this event that was 17 years ago is still fresh in their minds. And they feel as though they deserve to be punished for their actions. They have not forgotten the day they threw their brother in the pit. They have not forgotten the day they sold Joseph into slavery. Now, as we come to this passage today, we're not, we're not going to break it down into points as we normally do, but instead we're going to work through the story today considering some different perspectives and, and taking in the drama of this amazing story. And as we drop into chapter 42, we're reminded of something that I mentioned last week. I mentioned that if we think about the story being told in Genesis, it doesn't make much sense to have so much time spent on Joseph and so much time spent in Egypt. Joseph is not in the covenant line to the Messiah. And the Egyptians most certainly are not in the covenant line to the Messiah. And while the book of Genesis has had some stories that are asides, that are sort of side roads, for lack of a better way of saying it, for the most part... The story of Genesis is about the covenant line. And when we've broken off off from those stories, it's been short, 
Very short, actually. For example, we broke off and we heard about the family line of Cain for a while. And we also followed Ishmael into the wilderness for a little bit when he was sent away from the covenant people of God by Sarah. Now these are just two examples of the story going off the main path, off the plot. But those are so short, you might not even really recall what happened in those stories unless you really took the time to think about the fact that they weren't a part of this main plot of the covenant line, of the genetic line, from the seed of the woman to the Messiah. Well, as I mentioned last week, here at the end of Genesis, we've had our focus taken away from the big family of Jacob, and we've zoomed in on Joseph, we've zoomed in on what's happening in Egypt. Now, we really don't see that as all that strange, because while we know the story of Joseph so well, these are the highlights of Sunday school, right? These are some of the best stories. These are the Sunday school classics. And of course, this makes sense. These are great stories. These are some of the best stories that we can recall in Scripture. It's fantastic drama. And so we don't think much of the fact that we aren't following the promise really closely right now. And last week, as we finished up chapter 41, we were told that this famine was affecting more than just Egypt. It didn't stop at the borders of the Egyptian territory. It it went into the whole world, we read. And I mentioned that our story had zoomed in on Joseph and Egypt, but now it was pulling out so that we could get back to the bigger story, the story of the people of God. And God is using Pharaoh and the people of Egypt for his good purposes. But those good purposes are not only for the purpose of saving some Egyptians in the middle of a famine. They are about saving people all around this part of the world, but specifically, they are about zooming in and seeing the people of God and how they are going to be saved from this famine through the way God has been working in the greater world. Now, other than the story of Judah a few chapters back about his not being faithful to give his widowed daughter-in-law offspring and then the sexual sin that he committed. We saw that contrast against the purity of Joseph. We haven't really thought too much about Joseph's family because the story of Joseph, once again, is so good. We're now really invested in the plight of Joseph here. But now we see that name Jacob once again in the story. And yes, we find that the famine is affecting the whole world because Jacob is concerned about the fact that they can now get grain for sale in Egypt. Their family is in trouble. And you've got to love the way that the interaction with the sons of Jacob goes here. It, I just think that so much in this story is, just feels so authentic Jacob says, why do you look at one another? It sounds like any parent from any time in history who ever said, don't just stand there, get to work. I mean, that's, that's really what he's saying. And you get the sense here that there's a bit of desperation in the family of Jacob. The famine has hit home. They don't have food. Remember the little kingdom that we have seen from Abraham and then Isaac and now Jacob has become pretty big. They have acquired quite a bit over time, haven't they? This this is more than just sending your adult children off 
to get some food for their wife and kids. And then you'll stop on over at their houses during the week and get food yourself. You know, Jacob isn't saying, go get food for your families and then I'll come over, right? This is about more than that. This is about caring for their little kingdom and providing for their little kingdom. This is serious business. When you think back to all that they've acquired over the generations, it is quite a bit. And so now this famine not only threatens their lives, but the way of life that they've built with their community. And so ten of the brothers take off for Egypt, and we see that not much has changed in 17 years. Jacob is still playing favorites. Benjamin stays behind. Now remember that Jacob favored Rachel. She was the one that he labored for those many years to have her hand in marriage. And then he favored her oldest son in Joseph. And now he's doing the same in favoring Benjamin, the son of Jacob and Rachel. And you can understand this. We get this. We feel this. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. And he's lost both Rachel and Joseph. So of course he wants to protect Benjamin. Now, while it comes off as favoritism again, I don't think there's probably a one of us sitting here today who really blames or judges Jacob for this. But this is all going to come back as a major plot here in the story. So as the story has the ten brothers travel to Egypt, we're reminded of the authority that Joseph has in Egypt. He is the guy. And so all the people come to him for grain. Now, What we've learned about Joseph and the wisdom he's had, don't you kind of think that maybe reading this story, you thought he'd be a little bit smarter than this, right? Um, Any management and productivity expert in our day, what would they have told Joseph? You need to delegate, man. Why are you talking to all these people? Have someone further down the ladder handle this and you, you bask in your power. But I'm guessing at this time, with the circumstances that they are in, There's no more important work for Joseph to do than to wisely dispense the grain to the people that come to him. And so this is what leads up to this amazing drama here. The brothers end up in front of their brother that they sold into slavery. What an unbelievable turn of events. In fact, it's so unbelievable that I, I think we can totally understand why the brothers don't recognize him. Not only has it been 17 long years, since they've seen the guy, but they never would have expected the brother they threw in a pit and sold into slavery to be in this position of authority. And I think all of us at some point in our lives have have experienced this to some degree. You run into someone that you haven't seen in a really long time at a place that is unlikely that you thought you would ever see them, and you don't recognize them. Maybe they recognize you, and you didn't expect to see them, so they look like a stranger to you until you knew who they were. Takes a while for our brains to kick in there, right? We're not always looking for people, and so sometimes we just don't see them. So that really would have been the case here. And so I love how Moses tells us this story. Notice the detail of the story that he gives right away as they end up in the room together. Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him. So The text is going to draw out the significance of this a little later. But Moses is giving us the opportunity to have a moment of recall here, isn't he? Before he spells it out for us, clearly, he lets us do some interpretive work. Let us do some thinking. Do us 
let us do some, in, do, some, do some remembering. Because the dreams that basically got Joseph into this circumstance, they have now come to pass. Remember what Joseph's brothers called him when he approached that day that they threw him in the pit and sold him into slavery. I said it like an older brother who doesn't like the younger brother when I talked about it back when we were in that passage of the text. Here comes the dreamer. Remember, they called him the dreamer, and now those dreams have come to pass. What a reminder for us that God was at work in the life of Joseph from the beginning. It was not for the purpose of glorifying Joseph, was it? Not like the brothers thought. Or maybe even Jacob would have thought, or maybe even Joseph was, would have thought. This was never about glorifying Joseph. Because our human minds hear that dream that Joseph had about his brothers bowing down to him, and we think that the bowing down before Joseph was about him being a ruler and him having power over them and him being able to tell them what to do. From our human perspective, that's what those dreams were about not only for us as we read it, but imagine what it would have been like being the brothers or even Jacob hearing this. But when God put that dream in the mind of Joseph that night, God knew the path. God knew it was going to be a difficult path as well. It wasn't going to be an easy path to glory, but a path through suffering for Joseph. A path through suffering that leads to the salvation of his people. Now you've heard me talk many times in the past about this idea of a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. These were categories the reformer Martin Luther lined out. And the idea is that humans have an idea of glory. And it is human conquering. It's human achievement. It's us climbing the ladder to God on our own. It's about us saving ourselves and reaching God by our own work. But in contrast, Martin Luther also talked about the theology of the cross, that salvation comes through suffering and through the work of God on our behalf for his people. And that is how God is most glorified in the salvation of his people. And it comes through suffering. So we can see this idea here in the life of Joseph, can't we? The human idea of glory was that Joseph would get his robe of many colors and he would receive the power to rule from his father and all of his brothers would bow down to him because of his position of human achievement. It was about power. It was about the glory of Joseph. He's ruling over them. When we start the the story of Joseph, that's how it feels. And you know that is how the brothers and even Joseph perceived what was going to happen. But now, through the path of suffering, Joseph's dream has come to pass. And it's not to the glory of Joseph, but to the glory of Almighty God, who in his sovereign will has caused all of this to come to pass, that he might be glorified in saving his people. I mean, seriously, how amazing is this drama That God has brought all this to happen, not through the easy path, but through suffering and all of this. Best of all, how amazing is it that this story here in Genesis points us to Christ? 
and how in his suffering he makes us a people for his own possession. That God is glorified in the death and in the suffering of Christ where he bore the wrath of God for our sin. And so we can see here the bigger story beyond this exciting moment of Joseph being right after all these years of suffering. It's about more than Joseph, and it's even about more than their family. It's about the whole family of God. It's about you and I, the ones who are saved through the covenant line that comes from the line of Jacob when ultimately Jesus suffers, dies, and rises again for the people of God. But we come back to the story that is directly in front of us here. And we see that Joseph, not being recognized, gives him the opportunity to do pretty much anything he wants. And you got to wonder if he didn't think about this. If I ever see those boys again, what, how's this going to go down? You, you, you know, we know what we would be thinking, right? And we're told here, like I said before, that he remembers his dreams like you and I have already recalled those dreams. And in the midst of all this, you have to think his mind must have been racing really fast with all the things he thought that maybe he wanted to do. All those options that he had considered over the years of getting back at them. And so where he lands is interesting. He accuses them of being spies. He says they must have come to assess the situation and see that Egypt is unable to grow crops during this famine, just like the rest of the world. And the rough way that he's speaking and the accusations that he makes obviously create panic and defensiveness in the brothers. They just want food, they tell him. They're but the sons of one man. And, and the drama of the story continues to pick up as Joseph doesn't let this go. He continues to accuse them of being spies. And they tell their story. And interestingly enough, they tell the whole truth. They were 12, but one of them is no more. And so Joseph keeps pushing them and demands that they prove the veracity of their story by bringing Benjamin to him. And then he keeps him in custody for three days, and you have to wonder where, where Joseph's heart was in all of this. Joseph is one of the most upright and moral people, one of the best examples in all of Scripture for us, but you have to think he might have enjoyed this a little, right? Wouldn't you have enjoyed this a little bit? In fact, I think most of us, if honest, would have to say that we would have been way harsher with our siblings if we were in the position that Joseph was in. And so as we come to verses 18 through 25, we see that after three days, Joseph changes his demands a little. Instead of one brother going to get Benjamin, he agrees to have only one brother stay behind. And this is where the drama of the story really builds up. If you, if you imagine it in your mind, you can probably pretty easily, during this point of the story, hear an emotional soundtrack building up in the background as this happens. And you can feel, even though you don't want to, you can feel some salty discharge forming in the corner of your eyes. This is high drama. You're going to tear up a little bit here. Because at this request, the brothers actually start to talk about the brother that they said was no more. But this brother was actually in the room. Again, you can, you can hear the music swelling, right? We see that their consciences are convicting them, and likely they have all been dealing with their guilt for many years. They believe that they are being punished for what they did to Joseph, and Reuben really drives this home 
when he tells them that he warned them and now they're getting a reckoning for his blood. And notice that statement there, the reckoning for his blood. Clearly, they assume that Joseph is dead if they're talking about blood. But the part that really gets to me and causes it to feel like a dramatic moment in a movie where I may or not, may not shed a tear or two, I'm not, I, I don't do that, honest, um, is when we're told about what this interaction looked like. Joseph has not been speaking with them without an interpreter. Because this is all in one language for us when we read it. We kind of forget the language barrier that would exist here and in this part of the world. We just assume that all the people coming in are speaking English like we are probably, right? They're asking for food in English and Joseph is answering in English. But Joseph, we remember, knows the language that they're speaking. He knows everything that they're saying and he understands them but he hasn't been speaking in this language. So they don't know that he's listening. And when he hears this, Joseph turns away and he weeps. That just has to tug at your heart as we read it. What a journey this family has been on. And it isn't over because Joseph is going to continue with his deception of thinking that they are spies and that he doesn't know who they are. And so he has Simeon bound and the rest of them are sent away. But he has their bags filled with grain and he gives their money back and they have their provisions given to them for the journey. Well, the sons of Jacob have been wondering what this governor of Egypt was playing at when they realize what has happened. They make an interesting statement here at, in verse 28. They say, what is this that God has done to us? When one of the brothers discovers the money, we, we see this And it's their first mention of God from any of them. They don't see any of this as random happenstance, but instead they believe that God is doing something as punishment for what they did to their brother. And ultimately the interesting thing is that God is at work. God is at work here. They think it's to be punished, but what is God actually doing? He is at work to save them. Despite their sin, despite their rebellion, despite their evil against their brother, God is at work to save them. Isn't that amazing? And as we close up the story, you know that this has not only been frightening for the brothers, but now as Jacob is hearing it, it has to be heartbreaking. As we close up with, uh, we see verses 29 through 34, we see them recounting this story with Jacob and let him know that They've been asked to bring Benjamin to prove the story and to get Simeon out of the custody of Joseph. And it's at this point that they discover that all their money is in their sacks. Every one of them, not just the one, but all of them. And it isn't hard to imagine how distressed this must have made Jacob. And we see his distress uh, in verses uh, 35 through 38 as the passage closes up. And the feeling that we get here is that Jacob is old. And he's had a difficult life. Remember, he's been limping for a long time from wrestling with God. And he's lost Joseph. He's lost Rachel. He's lost, now he's lost Simeon. He's as good as dead. He believes he's never going to see him again. So there's no way, no way that Joseph or Jacob is going to give up Benjamin too. And so Reuben again is the brother who tries to work things out. And he has what we would see as a disturbing suggestion. We see it here. He's He so badly does not want the guilt that he has for Joseph to be expanded to now include what has happened to Simeon 
that he offers his own two sons if he isn't successful in going to Egypt with Benjamin and then returning with Simeon. Now, I don't, I don't think this is a serious offer because Jacob was never going to slaughter the sons of Reuben if Simeon didn't come back. But the idea that we are meant to feel here is the gravity of the offer the sense that is within Reuben of, of guilt, the way that his conscience has been eating at him through the years. And remember how s- significant this offer from Reuben is. Family secession in their culture was so important. In fact, it was probably the most ultimate thing to them, to have family and to have sons that you could pass that legacy on to. So he's not only giving up his sons, he's giving up his legacy. He's giving up everything that matters to them. But Jacob doesn't trust Reuben to accomplish this mission, obviously. He tells them he only has one son of Rachel left, and if something were to happen to him, the sorrow would be so great it would bring him down to Sheol. In other words, he believes that losing Benjamin would be it. That's the end of the line for him. In his old age... He cannot handle the grief of losing another son, and he would be brought down to Sheol. He would be brought down to the grave. And so with that strong statement, we end the story of uh, chapter 42. We sort of are left hanging here. We know the story, but we're left hanging here at the end of chapter 42. Joseph's deception of his brothers has left a brother stranded in Egypt, and the people of God are left in a precarious situation. And we have to wait for the resolution to come till next week. I feel like I'm an old TV show uh, where they had the cliffhangers. Remember Batman, same bat time, same bat channel? So next week, come back. Same Joseph time, same Joseph channel, right? We're going to conclude the story of this and the people of God next week. We'll pick it up. But what's the application for us as we depart from here today? I want us to quickly consider the work that was done in the brothers of Joseph in this chapter today. We've seen the terrible things that the sons of Jacob did to their brother Joseph. We have had intimate knowledge of what this led to in the life of Joseph. And it's easy to see what despicable people the brothers of Joseph are. Even without considering the pain and the suffering that Joseph went through. But we see in this passage some movement in the brothers, don't we? Not only in our feelings toward the brothers, as they clearly aren't as hard hearted as we might have imagined, but we also see movement in the brothers. They acknowledge that they've done a terrible thing, and they even think that somehow what they had done to Joseph is now rebounding on them. And so my point is that our growth in faith and our growth in character is not a quick and it's not an easy thing. We have struggles with sin. And we may even have sin in our life that we have pushed the voice of our conscience aside. And we don't even think about it much anymore. And this is not a good place to be in. But we can see here in this text that it's never too late. It's never too late to listen. It's never too late to trust the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 17 years later, 
the brothers felt conviction for their sin. And so may we hear the Word of God. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, may we respond in repentance. May we respond in faith. And may we turn away from our sin, knowing that it is God at work in our lives to make us holy. It's a difficult place to be in. Being convicted of our sin is hard. Replying or re- uh, responding in repentance is even harder. To turn away from our sin is difficult. But this is where God, through His Word and by the power of His Holy Spirit, brings His people because He loves us and He desires us to conform our lives to His will. So may we hear the Word of God. May our consciences be at work in us through the power of the Word and through the Spirit that we might repent and turn from our sin and bring glory to God for His great work in our lives. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page.